All right, this is the new Glarus Brewing Podcast with Dan Carey. I am Scott May. We have Dan Carey here in our little uh, brew house studio with us today. We're going to be talking about a beer that hasn't been around since about 2014, and I've never tried this beer. Uh, it's back 40 Bach. Yeah, it's a beer I believe we first brewed it in 2011. It's a uh, it's a dark Bach beer, but it's uh, it's an American style Bach beer. We've certainly we've made uh, German style Bach beers uh, in Ufte Bach and Gyrator, yeah, big, rich um, alcoholic beers. But the American tradition of making Bach beers is much more easy drinking, uh, lower alcohol versions. Um, you know, you, you see such beers in Texas and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, particularly in the springtime. Okay. Although we came out with ours in the winter, we, we make a, we make a pale version, uh, in cabin fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a, a, a dark version of a, uh, American style Bach beer. That's really, that's really intriguing to me because I, I really enjoy gyrator and I really enjoy, uh, enjoy Ufta. And, you know, I've had, I, I believe I've had American Bach beers in, oh, um, what is, is, you know, Capitals Autumnal Fire or something? Or they come out no, with like a Bach beer? No, Autumnal Fire would be a uh, German style. That's a gotcha. big dog. That's, That's a, a big wonderful one. wonderful beer. But uh, American style Bach beers are something that was, you know, I think really brewed after Prohibition. Every brewer came out with like a dark beer in the... Um, uh, in the spring and, uh, you know, Shiner Bach is probably the most well-known example. Yeah. I was going to ask, beer. I was going to ask if that, if, if that was sort of like the, uh, the example people can sort of point to. It's also a beer I've never had. So yeah, it's a great beer. It's also an easy drinking dark beer. It's, uh, it's kind of, if you go to Texas, that's the beer you should drink draft version. But this, this is like, you know, a point, uh, Stevens point, traditionally made a Bach beer. And, and like I said, in Pennsylvania, you'd find this style of beer. It's, um, it's not nearly as alcoholic or as heavy, uh, as a European or German Bach beer. You know, usually it's around five or five and a half percent alcohol, but dark in color. Gotcha. Gotcha. And yeah, and as I was driving over here today, I was trying to think of like, what have I not had from New Glarus? And this was definitely on the list because it's just one of those things. I think it, when it came around, I just, I just must have missed it by its its little window. And then when I went to get it, I was like, oh, it's, it's gone, which is a good a good life lesson. It's like this and Stone Soup. I think are my two. I'm still, <laughs> I, I still have not had the opportunity to try quite yet. Well, you know, those are the two beers we bring them out based on our our fall uh, voting on our on our uh, on our website. You can vote for beers and. Back 40 uh, got a lot of votes, and so it, it came back. That's what people wanted. And this is sometimes Stone Soup gets a lot of votes. It's sort of like there is a collective consciousness, and people said, you know, how about making a Back 40 this year? So well, that's awesome. And I, that's awesome. And I'm, and I'm glad you, you said that because sometimes you'll see, like, ah, does the voting really matter? Or does it even count? They're just going to make what they want to make. But yeah. it, it does seem like, you, you, you know, four beers that can get fit into the schedule, you guys really take that into oh, account. Oh, yeah, definitely. Try to brew what people want. Well, yeah, I'd be foolish not to, I, yeah. I guess. Like, hey, everyone's telling us to brew back 40. Yeah, you know what? Exactly. Not today, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm going to open this up because uh, I really, really want to try this beer. And I, it's like a Pokemon, I guess. Like, you got to collect them all, you know? <laughs> Let's see. Here. I love the label art you guys do, too. Like, with the little su- the sun rising and 
the, the back 40 sort of uh, making the landscape. Like when you think about your guys' iconography, it's always so spot on because you look at it and it's like, you name this, this back 40 and the reference there is, you know, obviously to the heartland and farming, but oh, it's yeah. that, that part of a property, you know, cause you think about a farmer, he's living on all this land, but most of it is not up to him what he does with it, him or her, her, what yeah. they do with it. But the back 40, you can do whatever you want with. That's where your swimming hole is, where your, you yeah. know, your tire swing or yep. your, your shooting range, what, yep. whatever you want. And that's kind of what Deb's uh, idea with that. Originally, this beer was called Native Ale, mm-hmm. but uh, Back 40 is a, is a nicer name. And uh, she was, you know, alluding to that kind of uh, playful place that, uh, you know, that, that people go, kids go to, uh, like you said, uh, um, a swimming hole, hole with a rope swing or just a place to get into trouble. Well... You know, the thing that's already striking me about this is I, I, I opened it up and, and obviously you're looking at this. The color is absolutely amazing. But I was like, I had the glass like sort of over here, like just to the side of me. And the smell of it just just hit me from my glass. And it smells just like a it smells like everything you want in a Bach beer. But it smells like you're going like just the nose hit to me is like you're going to be able to drink this and not really um, have to think too much about, uh, you know, whether or not you'll be able to go to the next one or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly what it's uh, meant to be an easy drinking uh, beer. It, it, to me, it has um, the aroma of a, I guess I call it a chocolate covered banana. Yeah. Like a a chocolate banana or, or like a banana bread with, uh, with chocolate chips in it, which is like sort of one of my favorite things. Yep. That, that is absolutely, that is spot on for my palate because everything I love in like your gyrator and in Uftabak is, is present in this, but it's not, uh, you get the impression that it, it, it won't, it's not going to be so intimidating if you're just trying to get into like darker beers or beers that are getting outside of your, the normal, your normal comfort zone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this is obviously, as I said, a, a easy drinking beer, uh, meant, meant for drinking, um, a Bach, a German style Bach beer, like our Ufta or gyrator would be like six to six to eight and a half percent alcohol. And this is, you know, five, five and a half percent alcohol. So it's, it's a, it's an order of magnitude. um, lower in alcohol so easier drinking and uh yeah it's meant to be i would drink it ice cold and um i think it's just a like i said it's built for drinking it and the thing that that uh gets me about when you say stuff like that like oh this is you know it's, it's kind of an easy drink of beer it's built for drinking is is it is it it a hundred percent is it finishes on the palate very clean it finishes on the palate with the taste you want that's sort of what what brings you to Bach beers and what brings you to sort of more of these flavorful beers and it invites you to drink another sip which is all spot on for what you want out of uh, sort of an easy drinking beer but the complexity with which you put together these beers always amazes me because when you're sipping through this you're still getting all of those those very uh, distinct flavor notes that you would associate with bigger beers. Yeah. And to me, that is an insane feat to do. 
So can you walk me through a little bit putting this recipe together and like the impetus of how this beer came around? And, you know, as a brewer who, who, who as, as you've said, you, you, you make a, a fair number of box in any given uh, year, how you fit this one sort of in your, your greater um, portfolio of them? Well, I, I view this in a different way than I do gyrator and oofta. Uh, gyrator and oofta are meant to be, you know, rich and malty and liquid bread more or yeah. less. Um, I, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Scheinerbach from Texas, and so that was somewhat of the inspiration for this beer. Um, when you know, if you're in Texas, say uh, in San Antonio or Austin, and and drink the beer on draft, it's it's a really pleasant, easy drinking American style beer, and and I really like American easy drinking beer. Um, because it tastes good and it's thirst quenching and it doesn't fill you up so much. Yeah. So that idea um, kind of was percolating for me. And this really was, if memory serves, was Deb's idea to brew this type of beer. Um, because at that point, we hadn't really made anything like this, um, a dark, easy drinking beer. And... Uh, Deb thought it would be a fun thing to do, and I took her her uh, uh, idea and my um, feelings about what this type of beer mm-hmm. should taste like, and uh, came up with came up with uh, something that's kind of different than any other beer that we've ever made. And 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 you're absolutely right. And you know, having <laughs> drank through most <laughs> most of your your back catalog. I can see it, you know, I can see how this fits right in with it because it has everything you come to expect out of a New Glarus beer, right? It's it's obviously crafted with care. Flavor is obviously uh, a, a paramount, but it, there is something almost kind of distinctly different about this. And it started for me just when I caught that first sort of sort of whiff of it. It, it seems like this is a this is a pretty special beer. Yeah, it's uh, it's as you kind of alluded to, it's meant to be a uh, combination of a, of a complex flavor, meaning every time you sip it, you get maybe a slightly different yeah. flavor. Uh, you know, it's like a almost like a powdered chocolate at points and it's very fruity um, and uh, it's also light bodied. So that combination of drinkability and complexity is uh for me, at least, what makes a beer enjoyable. Um, sometimes you really don't want a big alcoholic beer. You just want something easy and light to drink. And that's what this is all about. So when you're thinking about marrying these these things of like, you know, big flavor and then also ease of drinking, uh, how how difficult is that process for you in, in sort of the tweaking side of things? Like how many iterations does something like a back 40 go through before before it's sort of shelf ready? Well, uh, certainly in 2011, we made some pilot brews to figure out how to get the chocolatey flavor and the color without the acrid burnt taste of dark malts. Because in order to get a dark color one has to use dark malts yeah dark malts some dark malts can have an acrid burnt toast type character or or like coffee and so 
in some beers that that works yeah it's not a flaw it's a it's a design feature almost well yeah, yeah. but for a beer like this it would detract mm-hmm. so uh it took a while to find the right um malt to give the color without an accurate harshness and so we ended up using um, dark chocolate malt from from Brees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it originally from Chilton, but now it's made in Manitowoc, and uh, that gives the color. And also, we're using two types of caramel malt to build a little bit of body, a little bit of sweetness, and to give kind of that. The spear has somewhat of a brown color to it mm-hmm. also. So we're using, uh, again, Brees, uh, a dark caramel malt from Brees, and then we're using a, a light caramel malt from England uh, that, that we really, really like. And then the, the base malt is um, uh, from Raw Malting in Shakopee, Minnesota. So it's mostly all-American malt. Uh, it's, it's 97%, 96%. American malt and the rest is a touch of English malt. Uh, so it's obviously a, um, a malt forward beer. It's not dry hopped. Um, we are also using, um, a blend of, uh, hops from, um, from, uh, uh, Yakima, Washington, mm-hmm. um, the variety Salea. And then we're using also, uh, hops from Germany, uh, spalt hops, um, to give sort of a mild background bitterness. You know, and, and in that answer, that that brings up a couple of questions for you. One is, uh, you know, Breeze comes up, you know, just so often in this room that it's like, uh, you know, it, it, I just start to think about it as almost like this vaunted place, right? And it, but it does seem kind of cool where it's like you, you start up a brewery in Wisconsin and it seems like uh, you found a partner in, in Breeze that's just making fantastic malt for you. And, and you've been able to, sort of leverage that, uh, that business relationship into sort of a collaborative friendship with these, with these maltsters. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Since we're a Wisconsin only brewery, we sell all of our beer in state. Of course it makes, it makes logical sense that we would use a Wisconsin partner to supply our malt. Um, although some of our malt also comes from, um, from Minnesota and that's Minnesota's close well you know uh, it, it wisconsin illinois minnesota and, yeah. and michigan i've never been to michigan but i'm, go, I'm gonna go out and say it anyway they, we're all the same they're, they're the same people oh they, my they, God. they are all the same people you go from kenosha wisconsin to the north side of chicago there's no there's no difference fundamentally between yeah. these folks yeah well i'll i'll let the uh i'll let the li- listeners write into you and not but, me about that you, you know what i will defend but, this position yeah there you go i'm gonna stay out of that one um but uh, I I first started buying malt from Brees in um, 1983, back when they were a much smaller malt house. Yeah, and the um, the man who who ran it was Roger Brees, uh, and he his family migrated to the U.S. from uh, from Czech Republic, uh, Czechoslovakia, and they started their malt house in Chilton. So it was a, a small malt house. And in those days, the, the brewing business was tough. Uh, breweries were closing and Miller and Bud were on their way up and mm-hmm. knocking down uh, Stroh's and, and, um, uh, and, and uh, Old Style and uh, many, many other breweries went by the wayside. So it was not an easy time. 
But I, I remember I called Roger Brees and ordered some malt. Uh, and ever since then, I've, I've used Brees malt and we've kind of grown together there. Uh, and it's, it's not only that they're local and that I've done business with them for 40 years, mm-hmm. it's that they uh, make really nice malt. They make lots of different types of malts. So as a brewer, it's really easy to find the types of malt that you want. And we collaborate. Um, we're working on projects to uh, develop new types of uh, Pilsner malts. And um, uh, they, uh, they're they a great partner for us. Well, yeah. And it seems, uh, you know, serendipitous as you're telling the story. It's like, because I know your great admiration and respect for all things coming out of uh, Czech Republic for things like uh, malt, especially when it comes sure. to, to Pilsners, things like that, and to sort of uh, start your brewery in a state that has a, a malt house that you you already know about that has its sort of roots in the Czech Republic. Yeah. Probably was, uh, probably at least in the back of your head, was like set off a bell like, okay, I know what these guys are going to be about. Yeah, well, you know, they. I think they came over, the family, I believe the family came over on the... Uh, uh, on the eve of World War II, um, mm-hmm. and uh, to escape uh, the you know the uh, the ex- extended visit that the Germans took on yeah. most of Europe, uninvited. Um, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> extended vacation. Yes, I have a friend in Belgium that uh, says when we're around Germans, uh, <laughs> I like you Germans. You're all welcome to visit, but please don't all come at once. <laughs> and please, you're not welcome to stay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in any event, I believe that the old malt house is, is still there. Uh, it's not, it's no longer running, but they left the country. And, uh, I think they first started to work with a malt house in, uh, Chilton and then they bought the, bought the malt house. And the family is still, still runs the, uh, Roger's, uh, wife and Roger's son are the principals that run that business. And, um, they're very quality led. Well, yeah. And I can, I can sort of tell, I don't know how, how, I think I might've set a land speed record for how quickly my glass has gone empty during a recording. Well, I think maybe you got a crack in the bottom or something. I'm excitable type. It was a, yeah. a you know, it was a new, uh, a new flavor experience for me and it just happened to be very, very good. And what I'm looking at is the, the lacing on the side of the glass. Now yeah. it's just, the you Belgian know, from, lacing. yeah, from where I started to where I finished, you can tell yeah. every sip I took. Yeah, you can tell every sip by the lines. Yeah, yep. and and look, I'm a pretty measured drinker. I yeah, wasn't. That's right. I wasn't chugging that. <laughs> no, they're all exactly because you know the the tapered glass, the the distance between them gets bigger and bigger, meaning that you know the volume in every sip was about the same. So yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah see, I, I'm a I'm a. This is why I do what I do. I'm a I'm a professional yeah. at drinking beer. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'm definitely going to go for another pour of this because, you know, I have. Um, I've probably made no secret of the fact that I'm just a huge fan of darker beers and I'm a huge fan of, uh, sort of beers, uh, you know, winter beers, right. Stuff you sort of cozy up to and buy a fire and drink. And I think this, um, this embodies all of that, but at the same time, it's, um, it's, it's leaving me in a mental place where I'm just uh, feeling very happy about it. You know what yeah, I mean? Where I'm just go. like, good. this feels, this feels well, like you're back 40. You're in your happy place. Yeah, exactly. This feels like a very good way to spend an afternoon at home with a book. Yeah. And I would, I would drink the beer, you know, at refrigerator temperature, 38 degrees. Mm-hmm. I went, you know, Ufta and Gyrator are probably better at say 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this beer is uh, you know, at refrigerator temperature, maybe even in a frosted glass, 
I think uh, it's it's an American style beer, and that's how you drink American beer. That's, yeah, well, and, and you know what? There, there's nothing wrong with that because when a beer like this is um, is prepared to sort of the seeming exacting standard you wanted it, you know, to be the flavors you seem uh, you wanted to be intentional right away uh, are. Sure. And that uh, warming will open them up, and it will it will change. But if I'm gathering what you're saying, it's not going to unveil anything to you at that. Oh, point. Oh no, it will. But I would say that uh, you know you, you kind of alluded to that drinking it. And you said flavor experience as it develops, as the beer warms up, new flavors will will come out, just like running a distillation column. So if you start out ice cold, it's very um, <laughs> it's it's very quick goes down very quickly but yeah as the glass warms up you're going to experience different flavors that volatilize off so i would say that um i would just pick a starting point that's a little bit cooler than i would for ufta or gyrator gotcha so it's more about you know sort of maximizing that that journey from like cold to yeah getting part, toward getting towards part, room temperature yeah, yeah. That's very cool. And now in 2011, do you remember how this beer sort of was received when it went out into the world or, uh, or any of uh, sort of that history? Um, I remember that this beer was, was very well received in New Glarus. Yeah. It was on tap everywhere in the village and a lot of the locals, uh, were drinking it. You know, there's, um, a lot of, um, kind of Swiss heritage in, Wisconsin, so the, maybe sitting around the Stomptisch or the the locals' table, uh, a lot of guys would would uh, would drink this beer because it's um it's a good social beer for sitting around visiting with other people in the tavern. I can see how this beer could very quickly become someone's daily drinker if it was yeah. if it was sort of if it, if it was around all the time because it is it is very it, it's very distinct and it's very good and it's very flavorful. Uh, but it, it it feels like you know you could have this with dinner uh, you know every night and you wouldn't really get tired of it and it it wouldn't be too much either you know because yeah, there is a could, balance there you could kind of describe it almost as a dark version of spotted cow in a way uh, you as know, far as that as far as what you're saying yeah and as soon as you said that like it, it sparked in my head of like no exactly a hundred percent it has a little bit of sweetness but it has it it has everything you want in a beer with just a hint of that, the sweetness from like the, the chocolate malts and the caramel malts and things like that. But it finishes in a way that's very, just, just very so clean. And it just has this, this weird, like it factor of like, I I can't, I can't explain to you why, but I just really like this beer. You know what I mean? Yep. Good. Well, thank you. So as you know, we're getting through talking about, uh, this style of beer, and I know we've spent some time on box uh, before, but when you were crafting, when you were crafting this one, and you know, as you said, it was it was Deb's, you know, sort of Deb's idea to to make sort of a more easy drinking dark beer was something, you know, and I know you've mentioned Shinerbach and things like that, but was something was was there something else occupying that niche in the market at that time, or was this sort of its own thing as you were making it uh, in Wisconsin, not really. Yeah, you know, it was it's pretty unique. Um, when you think of craft beer, of course, uh, most craft brewers are making dry hopped IPAs, uh, that type of beer, barrel aged, strong stouts, etc. So this beer is going completely the opposite way. Um, 
you know, we made over 200 different beers for sure. So mm-hmm. this was uh, not meant to be your typical craft beer. Um, and oftentimes I try to brew beers that I would drink. And, you know, like you said, this is the kind of beer that I would have with dinner on a on a cool night like tonight. Well, yeah, and it's it's funny when you put it in the context of that, that sort of history. Because, when yeah, you're talking about 2011, that was... Yeah, that was sort of when you first brewed this, that was sort of as, you know, the craft beer ascendancy was happening and things were getting just very, you know, very either boozy or very either bitter, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the uh, bitterness arms race. Yeah, the bitterness arms race, which was then followed very shortly by by the how how boozy can we make this uh, stout arms race and then by the how hazy can we make this IPA arms race. Yeah. But like many of your beers, it does stand like a, you know, like a reed in the rushing tide or in the rushing river, right? Because it's just, it, it it's there saying, it's, it's basically there saying like, yeah, everyone's rushing past us doing this stuff. We're, we're here doing what we want to do. Well, we are, we're always somewhat contrary in, uh, in how we brew beers. We don't really follow the, follow the crowd, so to speak. Now, is that born out of uh, just your personal interests in what you like to drink or, or, or is some of that born out of like, eh, well, I'm seeing what everyone else is doing. I, I just don't want to do that. Uh, it, it's, it's a combination of both, but if everybody is making a given style of beer, we don't want to be an also ran just in a crowded marketplace with lots of different examples, because if somebody's already doing it, why, why copy it? Yeah. Uh, and we try to be unique and, um, and then I guess you could also say that we try to make a stable of beers that are completely different mm-hmm. so that we don't have a house flavor and that maybe someone's not going to like the whole range of beers, but in our range of beers, we should be able to find them something that suits their palate. Yeah, that makes sense. That's better than my answer, which was always like, well, yeah, I have a bit of the you know, oppositional <laughs> kind of personality. Yeah. It was like, well, someone's telling me to do this. Nah, we're going to do, someone's telling me to do Y. Nah, I'm doing X. Yeah. And I'm going to no. do X so good that you're not going to be able to deny it. <laughs> I don't, you know, I understand that. And that's really not part of how I view things. I, I'm more just, I, you know, I guess I just think of ideas and let's try it. And I don't really have the, um, uh, how would you say the, the, that, that a beer has to be a certain way. And yeah. I, I'm always frustrated when, um, sometimes people that buy beer are, you know, they, they just have this preconceived idea of what a beer should be and, or what a craft beer should be. And, um, that kind of limits creativity that, uh, brewers should be able to go beyond the current guardrails. Well, yeah, and, and that's an excellent point because when you start, because then you're starting to talk about artistry, right? Because like yeah. every medium has its, you know, rules written and unwritten, but they, but the, the best practitioners in all mediums know the rules well enough to say, I, I'm not going to follow them this time. And there's a reason why there always has to be a reason why. And I think when you do a beer that's sort of between styles or is mar- or are marrying styles, there seems to be always a reason why. And even if that reason is just to, to scratch, you know, sort of the intellectual itch of can, can you even do it? Yeah, exactly. And if you look at artists, sometimes painters, for example, um, and uh, um, s- sometimes you'll see modern art that, that, that an artist has done and, and you think, you know, that's really looks like a, 
like a third grader did it. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I was looking at one famous artist's work and um, I saw some some paintings that he had done when he was younger and they were meticulously perfect, wonderful, uh, realistic art. Yeah. Like, wow, this, this guy was a really good painter, but he decided to, to go out in left field and, you know, use this kind of cubist uh, ideas. And um, uh, I, I think that sometimes if you understand the, the, the basics of how to make a beer and how to brew to the, to the modern tastes, but you deviate from it. It's kind of, it's another level of skill that, um, I I find challenging. Yeah. And, and it seems like as you, you know, as you talk about mastery, right. And as you get into, uh, get really deep into sort of the doing of one thing and the thinking of one thing, you know, once you sort of get past the, can I do it? okay, I can. Well, can I do it? Well, okay, I can. Well, can I do it to the absolute best of my abilities? Yes, I can. And once you get to that point, then the the question almost automatically has to come up of, okay, what's next? Right? Because, yeah. you know, there's always going to be a next, right? And it has to live in, in th- then what will keep you sort of going has to live in invention, I think. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, the world changes. Brewing of beer, uh, you really have... Uh, as a brewer, there's two things that you have to think about. One of them is, is to always make your, your brands, your beers, uh, true to what they are. You can't deviate from what it's supposed to be, Yeah, but you can kind of make it crisper and brighter and more of what defines that beer and, and a better shelf stability. So fine tuning the exactness of a given recipe is a life times challenge because you can always just kind of fine tune it. So it's exactly what it's supposed to be every time. And that's really difficult. And then the other thing is, is to try to find ways to, to, to delight customers because, you know, people have a tendency, it's human nature to get bored and to always be looking for something new, uh, I have had a lot of times, not so much now, but before COVID, people would say, what's new? What's new? And people like things that are new and adventurous and different. And uh, so that that is also a creative outlet. So doing both of those, they kind of feed on each other because as you learn how to brew a given beer and really understand, you know, to, to have a, a, a more or less almost a 30-year relationship with Spotted Cow and kind of growing up with that beer and understanding what it is and understanding how to make it. It's like a relationship with a friend. Um, over time, you begin to appreciate that beer or that person more and learn what they're all about. And that's uh, a lifetime or multiple lifetimes adventure. But out of that, you also learn how to deal in the case of a friend, how to deal with other people in the case of beer, how, how to deal with other beer. So what I've learned with Spotted Cow or making a Pilsner, I can apply to lots of other beers. And when you try something completely different, you never know what you're going to learn uh, because beer is a, is an ever ending um, rabbit hole of, of complexity. Yeah. And, you know, within that answer, it, it just kept sparking things in my head. Uh, one of them was about the, the, you know, the dialing in and the tuning of a beer. And if you if your intent was to dial in 
the flavors that are present in the best heavy box, but make it, you know, make it um, a little bit more uh, approachable, a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of friendly. And that's these yeah, are kind of, yeah, kind, of, yeah, kind of the wrong words to use. But, you know, I think I, I think with uh, Back 40, that is, you know, that is 100 percent there. Right. And then the, the second uh, thing that sort of sparked in my head was when you're talking about learning from Spotted Cow and beer and some of the beers you did is uh, it's almost like, you know, your 30 year relationship with Spotted Cow, you can almost view as sort of like a Rosetta Stone on how to sort of start translating sort of the other work you've been able to sort of spin off of that. Is, is any of that accurate at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, w- when you brew a beer every day, uh, year in, year out, day after day, week after week, month after month, you really learn uh, the idiosyncrasies of, of yeast and malt and hops and, and, and your equipment and your people. Um, because uh, to stay consistent, you have to constantly be on guard. Crop changes, seasonal changes, uh, equipment changes, all of those things can have sometimes subtle and sometimes more than subtle effects. So one always has to be on guard. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny, you know, and, and we've said, you know, before you like, you know, these are the houses that Spotted Cow built, right? They, oh, yeah. they just are. And you'll see the comments like, yeah, Spotted Cow allows them to do all this other stuff. And I think people tend to think of that in terms of like stability, right? Uh, if you're having money coming in from this, this brand, it allows you to take flyers and risks, which it, it certainly does. But it seems like it also, you know, allows you from a skill perspective to do what you do. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? It's not just like, it's not just the capital brings in, it's the, the experience and the, 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 um, you know, the 10,000 hours times X amount of times of experience you've put into that beer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always thought that way about, uh, you know, what, what, what could we do better? What could we do with it? even, you know, even when I worked at, uh, Anheuser-Busch and on the midnight shift, uh, you know, a part of my job was to taste beer before it was released to packaging. And mm-hmm. I used to think sometimes about, uh, um, you know, boy, if we did this to this beer, if we took bush, uh, unfiltered bush and did this and put it in a can for a Christmas beer, boy, that'd be a really good beer. Yeah. So I was always, um, thinking this, uh, I don't think the brewmaster really appreciated it. I was going to say, uh, how receptive were they? No. <laughs> Zero. Bush? Zero reception. Zero. I learned not to say anything. Yeah. It, it is funny how, um, how you can have all of the, the talent, you can have all of the drive and you can have all of the want to, but if the guy directly above you is just sort of stifling. Yeah. It well, does, it's a different agenda. It's, well, it's a different agenda and a different, a whole different thing, but it just always makes me think like how many, you know, how many really creative folks were, are, are in the world who are just sort of like, man, if Bob would just, if Bob would just retire. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm sure most people. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that could be said about just about anybody. Um, but as we were sort of finishing up unpacking back 40 Bach and it is now sort of rocketing up my list of favorite, favorite beers because it, it does, it honestly packages everything I, I love about dark beer in, in, in a way, uh, that is very pleasing to my palate and very, uh, refreshing at the same time, which is not something you get in a lot of dark, stronger beers. It's just the two seem antithetical. So marrying those two concepts and having it come out this well, I think is just uh, an absolute achievement. And I, I hands down love this beer. And for anyone who's wondering, I, I am legitimately tasting this for the first time and falling this deeply in love with it. Well, so, the room smells like chocolate. 
It, it is absolutely great. Um, but we did, we've had a couple of listener questions come in and one, one of them came in and I'm sort of springing this one on you just cause it popped into my head and I read it about 20 minutes ago, but, uh, it was revolving around nitro beers. And if you would ever put out a nitro beer or had ever put out a nitro beer or what your thoughts are on nitro beer. And I figured I would ask because I have no idea about nitro beers, except they say nitro on it and they tend to do the Guinnessy thing. Yeah. Uh, when you say the Guinnessy thing, you mean the, the cascading yeah. tight foam, uh, it's a kind of a beautiful ceremony. Um, yeah, we, we've done a, a very, very, very small amount of nitro beers. We made a um, bourbon barrel stout mm-hmm. uh, that we released uh, two years ago um, at the uh, Great Taste of the Midwest gotcha. on draft. We've never done packaged beer um, on nitro, mm-hmm. um, but it's something that I, I dink around with. Um, um, <clears throat> nitrogen, uh, is not very soluble in beer. So that's why it has that kind of cascading rise out of the beer. It wants yeah. to escape the beer. It takes a lot of effort to stuff it into the beer because it's not very soluble. It's not its natural it's, habitat. No, it's not. And so when you open the can or pour the draft, it wants to come out and it forms a nice tight, foam because and the foam is very stable because the air is you know 79% nitrogen so it's in balance it doesn't need to escape whereas carbon dioxide on the other hand is very soluble uh in beer and there's not uh you know the the atmosphere is you know the, it's, as i said 79% nitrogen and it's probably uh 0.03 uh, percent uh it's three or four hundred parts per million uh co2 um although it's going up in the atmosphere it's it it rushes it it, it uh, rushes out of the beer and um makes uh a foam that's not as tight because it goes in the atmosphere quicker and then co2 laden beer is has a prickly sour taste to it yeah. uh, because CO2 is an acid um, and it's, it's prickly on the tongue. So it's a different experience. So normally nitrogen is added to beers that are um, maybe have a lot of dark malt mm-hmm. and the carbonic bite uh, from CO2 would maybe clash with that. Uh, also, if it's used in a beer that's light bodied, it, you need that CO2 snap. So normally you find uh, nitrogen in dark roasty beers or it could, you know, it could be in hoppy, uh, hoppy bitter beers. Um, it's mainly sort of an English tradition, although left hand certainly has done a really good job of it. So I guess I would, I would say is, is maybe it's some, something that we'll do in the future. Um, it's hard to communicate uh such a thing to a bar because if a bar has a draft line available and they're pushing with co2 it's easy for us to get that business but if Mm -hmm. we say but you need to have nitrogen so that requires a change and it's and maybe they have guinness on tap well they're probably not going to pull off guinness for a one-off keg of something we're going to make so it's a uh it's it would be difficult to communicate it would be difficult logistically to sell um, so that's why we only did it 
ourselves yeah. at the great taste. We poured the beer. Um, you could control it from beginning to yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. So m- maybe someday, but it's it's very much a niche product, and it would be hard to communicate and logistically difficult to get a, a draft line because the I don't think people really understand how difficult it is to to get a draft line mm-hmm. in a bar because there are thousands of beers available, and sometimes uh, wholesalers will have beers that are not selling and in order to move them, they'll say, you know, you you buy one and we'll give you one. And so uh, those kind of things happen more or less. And uh, it's not something we want to get into the business of trying to fight that war. Yeah. Cause it seems like what you're saying is you can do it, you can do it well, but then it opens up a host of issues, one of not the least of which is then you have to convince somebody to do something different yeah. with their business. And, and that's and something you just can't control. How's anyone's going to react to saying, now you have to change this aspect of your tap line for well, my yeah, beer? Yeah, well, there's, there's obstacles to, to the marketplace. One is you have to brew the beer and know how to brew it. Yeah. That's, that's, of course, hurdle number one. Then you have to uh, explain it to the wholesalers, make it a priority for them and uh, help them to get it to the bar. Then you have to talk the bar into putting it on tap. You have to have, tell the bar that they need to change their their tapping system to include nitrogen and a different method of pouring. And then they have to be trained on how to do it. Uh, so it's it's adds it adds a lot of complexity to the um, the dance of getting beer into the market and. I have to tell you that in the brewing business, what I do of brewing beer is not easy, but it's it's uh, it's nothing compared to getting beer on the onto a truck uh, out of the brewery and uh, on on you know onto a grocery store shelf or on a tap line. That's <laughs> that's really where the war is fought. This brewing of beer is nothing compared to that end of the business. And, um, unfortunately that's the reality of the situation because there's so many, so many breweries, there's 10,000 and there's, there's more breweries opening and there are closing still. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, you go to any town and every corner has a brewery on it and they all are canning beer and selling it to the local liquor store. So it's, uh. It's not easy. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny hearing you explain it because it's like, while your job is exceedingly difficult and doing it to the level you do is exceedingly difficult, but for you, as long as you hold up your end of the donkey, yeah, you're sort of done once it hits the, the packaging well, line. Yeah, and and, and the, the, the business of, of, of selling beer, which is uh, a marketing and selling beer, which is uh, Deb and, and Dennis, who you've, uh, you know, I think you, you have interviewed Dennis with me, um, and, and also the business of wholesaling and then the business of retailing, dealing with, uh, with customers is... Uh, is, is a lot more complex. Yeah. It, it, it seems like it cause you know, the, the, the variables you have to deal with, you can control the variables they have to deal with yeah. also de- also include other people's personalities, yes. wants and desires. And yes. that's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. That would be a good uh, podcast with Deb that she could tell you war stories of all the bars and taverns and grocery stores she's been in and, uh, interesting conversations that she's had oh christ we get we get, we get devin here naming names yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. 
All right, Dan. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really sure. appreciate My it. My pleasure.